Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. We got a fair amount of reading to do, and so maybe stretch your legs there a little bit. If you're a guest, thanks for being here. We are in the fourth week of our study in the book of Acts. It's our fall series. We're going to be here up until Advent, which is our Christmas celebration, and then we'll actually come back to it in the new year. But we'll be in Acts chapter 4 and verse 36, and we're going to actually look at three stories here today, and I'm going to read through them, and then we will pray. Acts 4.36, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and his wife, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself part of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and a great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And I felt like that probably wasn't the only story we should look at. (laughs) And so, (laughs) go to 5 and verse 17. 5 and verse 17. And the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in a public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard it, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to preach. Look at verse 27. And when they had brought them in, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, Did we not strictly charge you to not teach in this name? Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. And then look at chapter 6 and verse 1. This will be the last one, and then we'll pray. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because of their widows, and they were being neglected with a daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God. Early communion, right on. That we should be... (laughs) Mom, I know you're mortified right now, but trust me, kids have gotten a lot further up. Remember when T-Bone ran like right in front of me? That was awesome. (laughs) That was nothing. All right. And and, uh, they summoned the 12, uh, the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven good men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty and we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for... uh, this testimony of the early church. God, they were normal people uh, who were just wanting to be used by you. And God, that's what we are. We're just normal people. We're not, uh, there's nothing especially exceptional about us other than that you've saved us and want to use us. And so we uh, resonate with this story. And God, we want to become the kind of church that you want us to be. 
We want to become the kind of church that people can look at Damascus Road and uh, be confirmed in their faith, be encouraged in their faith, have their questions and doubts answered. And God, we know that that will only happen if you do a mighty work. And so we're going through this book to be challenged and convicted and encouraged and to see you make Damascus Road what you want it to be. So we come every week as we have the last three and we just say, God, where your people do with us what you will. Do it for your glory and do it for our joy. And we'll thank you in the belief that you'll do it by your good name. And all his people said, amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So today we are going to look at these three stories. And we're at a point in the book of Acts where we've seen Jesus ascend back to the Father. We've seen the day of Pentecost. We've seen uh, the characteristics of this early church. We've seen Peter, Peter preach in boldness. And then something happens that's a very important spiritual principle. Anytime that God's at work, so is his enemy. Anytime that God is doing, so is, is Satan doing. And we see this early church come under attack. Now, the thing that you need to understand about attack is that uh, Ephesians chapter 6 lets us know that we are involved in spiritual warfare and that that spiritual warfare isn't between flesh and blood, but it's between spiritual principalities and powers. And so this is a a spiritual attack. And the reason that I want to go out of my way to make this point is because spiritual attacks happen to spiritual communities that are called churches. And I think that a lot of times whenever a church is struggling, whenever a church has challenges, whenever a church is feeling under attack, we first think of the church like a social entity or an organizational entity or a systematic entity. We don't think of it as a spiritual entity, and so we don't process attacks as spiritual, we process them as practical. And when we come up with practical responses to spiritual attacks, we miss the opportunity for God to respond spiritually and miraculously, and we don't get to the things that make this a spiritually vibrant and healthy place or not. And so these attacks that we're going to look at today, three of them, are attacks that I think we will experience at an individual level and that I think that we do experience at a corporate level. And you need to understand, as we said last week, that anything that happens to an individual in Damascus Road is happening to Damascus Road, and anything that happens to Damascus Road at the corporate or communal level is happening to you. And so if you're a part of this community, and you're trying to do life here, and you're trying to get to Jesus here, and you're trying to be on mission here, uh, these attacks, it's it's not you and us, it's, it's we. We're in this together. And so I want to look at three attacks that I think happen in the book of Acts and that I think happen today. I said to you uh, every week that the book of Acts is primarily descriptive. In other words, it's this happened. It describes what happened. But out of it, God gives us some prescription. He prescribes for us ways that he wants us to order the church and how he wants us to gather ourselves and what he wants us to focus on. He prescribes paths for us that worked then and that will work now. And so I want you to just, in your mind, take a few seconds here and say, God, just let me, let me hear from you. Let me have eyes to see the spiritual entities that are around me and help me to trust you to give me what I need to stand, as Ephesians chapter 6 says, in the midst of spiritual warfare so that you can do with me whatever you want for your glory and for my joy. So if you're taking notes, three attacks that I want you to 
note here. The first we see in Acts chapter 4.36 through 5.12, and the attack is fakeness. Fakeness. All of these are going to start with an F, and that reminds me, I had a buddy, he was teaching, and he was always trying to alliterate things, and he goes through all of these Fs, and he gets to the end, and he goes, and now for my favorite F word, and I was like, oh, he's a real conservative, so I'm not going to do that other than to tell you that he did and make fun of him a little bit, all right? The first is fakeness, and the story that's represented is Barnabas sells a piece of land, and he brings his tithe to the apostles, and he lays it at their feet, and it's good, and they celebrate, and they're glad together. And then the first word in chapter 5 is, but. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas sells a piece of land, tithes off of it, Ananias sells a piece of land and comes in with the ideal that he is tithing off of it, but he's not really tithing off of it. He's holding a piece back for himself, which means that he's being what? He's being fake. Now, you have to ask, why would Ananias and Sapphira go to such great lengths to present this facade? What were they trying to accomplish? What were they hoping that people would think about them and think about this act that they were doing. What do you think it is? That they were, what? Well, I think it was that they wanted people to think that they must be really, really spiritual. And they must really, really love God. And they are doing this really fantastic, spiritual, Christian kind of duty to bring this big tithe. And everyone's going to look at them and say, wow, they're so godly. And they're so, to the extent that Peter says, he kind of hits the button and goes, hey, uh, Ann, uh, what's the deal with this tithe that, you're, tithe that you're bringing? And Ananias sticks to the story, right? Peter kind of calls his bluff and Ananias says, yep, that's, that's the whole amount. And, uh, and what does God do to him? You can say it. He kills him. Makes that whole basket in the back a little more serious, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> right? He kills him. Now, here's the reason that I think that this story is so important. We know that the rest of the story is his wife comes in, sticks to the same story, and God kills her as well. But the thing that's being noted here, and the first attack that we see on this early church, is something that the church is known for. And that's hypocrisy. Lots of people who don't want anything to do with the church, the first thing that comes out of their mouth, it's almost cliche at this point, is the church is full of hypocrites. And the thing that I want you to see about this, and this is the reason that I noted this is a spiritual attack, is because what we see here is the early church believing that hypocrisy wasn't just something that's part of the human condition, but it was a spiritual attack that resulted in sin. God doesn't kill people for, oh, not a big deal. God seemed to believe that this kind of religious fakery was something that needed to be dealt with harshly to the extent that when he killed Ananias and Sapphira, it says that the early church was filled with fear, and not the kind of fear that's unhealthy and paralyzing, the kind of fear that puts things in perspective. Now, the reason that I think it's important for us to kind of process this the way that we see it in the book of Acts is because I think that first off, we need to understand that Christians aren't people who aren't hypocrites. Christians are people who say, yes, I'm a hypocrite, and that's why I need a savior. I need you to understand that religious people, we get all worked up. No, 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 we aren't hypocrites. Let me save you the, the hassle. I'm a hypocrite. Full-blooded, hardcore 
hypocrisy all over the place, and that's why I need the gospel, because I'm broken, because I'm a mess. We don't want you to come in here and try to avoid hypocrisy, because the reality of it is you're going to have a very, very hard time doing it. We're people who have belief systems that sometimes we have a difficult time employing and working out, and that's the very definition of hypocrisy. And so what we see here is that Christians are people who not, aren't hypocrites. They're people who take hypocrisy very, very, very seriously. And they see it as sinful, not just this kind of weird practice that we tend to do as human beings. What then is the antidote? What then is the antidote to hypocrisy in the church? The first is to identify it as sin. And if you see it as sin, what's the next response to sin for a gospel-centered person? What do we do with sin? We confess it. We confess that we're sinful. We confess that we're broken. We confess that we're hypocrites. We don't try to be fake about it. We don't set up rules and facades that need to be followed when you're here from 11 o'clock to 12.30, give or take a half an hour. That's not how we organize. That's not how we operate. That's not who we are, and what we see is God making an emphatic exclamation point very early on in the early church of saying, hypocrisy is not something that my people do unless it's to confess it. What do you think would have happened if Ananias would have been like, look man, here's the deal. I got a big bunch of money in the Dead Sea's right there, and I've always wanted a boat, and I took some of it, and I'm tithing it, and the other part, I'm going to go and buy a boat. Do you think that Peter would have been like, gone? dead. No. The reason, the reason that God killed him is because he stuck to a value system that was to play the game, to be a fake, to not confess the, the internal and systematic hypocrisy that is toxic in so many of our churches. It's toxic in so many of our churches. And let me, under, let me say this for you. This isn't just human behavior. It's sin. It's sin that needs to be confessed. It's sin that needs to be out there. It's sin that needs to be uh, front and center so that the cross can be seen as greater than it. I told you last week that I have been meeting with a new coach and he's a bit of a counselor and he um, uh, says that the parts of your story that you don't know are the parts that control you. And so he makes me tell him my story makes me tell him things that have happened to me, things that I've done, things that I'm embarrassed about, uh, things that I wish hadn't happened, things that I'm ashamed. And uh, I was reading his book. I told it to you last week, The Relational Soul, and I had started trying to employ certain of the behaviors, and one of it was find someone that you trust and tell them your story, like the real story. And so I called a buddy of mine who lives in Columbus, and I said, can we FaceTime, and can you just get a cup of coffee, and can I just start? And I led him over two sessions that lasted about three and a half hours through my story, through my eyes. I'm not saying that it's exactly as it happened, but the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I mean ugly. Your pastor is a broken dude, and I'm a hypocrite, and I need Jesus. And part of the gospel-centered activity of me saying to this guy, and then I did this, or and then they did this, was something that, I'll be honest with you, scared me to death. Scared me to death. Now I'm sitting, I'm looking into the FaceTime uh, screen and I'm looking at my buddy and I know that he loves me and I know that I can trust him and I know that he's not going to say, you know, on a Facebook post. And then Tim Dunn said this. 
But it terrified me to do that. And what it represented for me was that there are things in me that, that, that keep me from the kind of authenticity that leads to a soul that is whole with a W. You see, the opportunity that comes out of confession, the opportunity that comes out of authenticity, and the thing that God's trying to direct us toward here is that somebody who is living an authentic life, warts and all, is somebody who has a soul that is healthy. You see, whenever we have a divided soul, and that's really what hypocrisy is, whenever we have a divided soul, we have a broken soul. Whenever there are things that nobody knows about me because I guard them because I'm ashamed that they would know, or I want them to think things about me that aren't true, that I know aren't true, but they make me feel good, it creates divisions in my soul that over time expand. Over time expand. And some of the reason that I believe there's so much mental health issues all through our culture is that we live with divided souls and that soul and that chasm divides and it expands and people are living different lives in different directions and when you're living different lives in different directions it kind of results in you being pulled in all different ways and you begin to break because God didn't create you to be that way and God is saying here in a really emphatic way I mean I, I, hate, I hate it for Ananias and Sapphira, but I'm thankful for you and I that God's saying, that's not how my people operate. It's not how my people operate. My people operate in wholeness that can only be found in the gospel that can only come from, this is who I am, but Jesus is bigger. Amen? This is who I am, but Jesus is bigger. What is the reason that I can reject hypocrisy and go toward confession. It's not, it's not me, it's Jesus. That's the reason, because I have a Savior. I have a Savior who says, yep, that's all true, but the blood of my son is bigger. It's better, it heals him, it redeems him. And I've been on a journey over the last couple months, to be honest with you, of trying to put my soul back together from things that pride and brokenness and religion have torn apart. And once I began to understand those things as spiritual attacks of the enemy of God to break what God was trying to do in me and through me, it helped give me a proper lens to be able to deal with it. What are the things right now that you need to confess to somebody? Not uh, so that you can be a Christian, but because you are one. You see, we don't, we don't confess out of anything other than the safety of being accepted by a father who gave his son to have us. And so the safest thing that we can be, even though it doesn't feel safe, is, is confessional and repentant and heading toward wholeness in our soul. And God is so bent on his people doing this that when a guy came in and lied about his tithe, he killed him so that for all of time, we could look at it and go, whoa, that, that spiritual attack is something that we have to stand at the gate and we have to always be the kind of place where authenticity, and I don't just mean authenticity because sometimes authenticity is just puke everywhere, right? You know what I'm saying? I'm talking gospel authenticity. I'm broken, Jesus is better. Not just I'm broken. How about you? Yep, me too, okay. I'm broken, Jesus is better. I'm in need, Jesus supplies. I'm weak, Jesus is strong. That kind of authenticity is the kind of authenticity that, listen to me, people's doubts will be met in that kind of place. 
Not in the kind of place where we play the game, right? Not in the kind of place where I'm buttoned up just right. I say what I'm supposed to say. You say what you're supposed to say. We do it for a couple hours because that's really all that we can stand. And then we get back to real life. The kind of place where fakes become an issue of sin and a rejection of the gospel. And when we say every week, we want to be a gospel-centered people, that means I go towards brokenness, not away from it. That's the first attack. The second attack we see in Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 42. It's really, really quiet in here. Y'all good? All right. The second attack is fear. Number one, fakes. Number two is fear. And here's the story. The disciples are all worked up, right? They've seen Jesus get sucked into the sky. The Holy Spirit's come on them. They've seen their church go from 120 to 3,000, really not even overnight, in the same day. And they are, they are on a spiritual high. And so they go out and they're preaching the gospel and the religious leaders of the time say, uh-uh. And they go and they have them arrested and they have them thrown in prison and they're sitting in the dungeon and here's what happens. The Bible says that the angel of the Lord comes and, and picks the lock, right? <laughs> and says, go, and here's what he tells them to do. I want you to go to the Capitol lawn during the farmer's market. I want you to set up a little stand and I want you to preach at the top of your lungs. Now, we read these things and we say, oh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, that's cool. We, we don't put ourselves in the story. These, these brothers and sisters are in prison. And this isn't like work release prison, right? They don't get a stack of books and internet access. This is a dungeon, okay? They're getting beat on. They're afraid. They don't know if they're going to make it through the night. They're bummed out. They're huddling together. An angel of the Lord shows up, picks the lock. The door swings open. He says, go to Capitol Lawn, set up a booth next to the creationist guy, right, who I saw the other day, and, uh, and, and preach the gospel. And I imagine that they didn't all make a bolt for the door. I imagine that Peter sat at the back of that cell and went, that seems like a terrible idea. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, James? And James is like, look, man, I'm more spiritual than you, but that sounds like a bad idea to me too. But what do we see them doing? They go to, in our context, Capitol Lawn. They go up on the steps and they open up their Bible, as it were, and they begin to preach. And you can kind of see the news shows up and there's pictures and the Pharisees are scrolling through their Facebook feed and there's Peter on the Capitol steps preaching. And they're like, what? What is this fool doing? And they get into their car and they drive it and they got this little religious posse together and they run up the steps and they're like, are you guys dim? Were we not clear? We threw you in jail for preaching the gospel and here you morons are doing it again. Not only are you doing it again, you're doing it on the Capitol steps. And what do the disciples say? Something very simple and very profound. We're not here to obey men. We're here to obey God. Now, the spiritual attack in that regard isn't, it isn't the persecution. It's fear. It's fear. The persecution is just the medium that the enemy uses to create the attack. Fear is the thing that paralyzes us. Fear is the thing that keeps us inactive. The possibility of something bad happening to us on a regular basis, when we preach the gospel, whether it be our reputation, our relationships, or whatever, fear 
is the attack. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of fear that is God's natural alarm bell for you, right? I'm not talking about physical fear. I'm talking about spiritual fear. And the thing that we need to understand about fear is that, listen, fear exposes our beliefs about safety. Fear exposes what I really believe about safety. Social safety, economic safety, relational safety, spiritual safety. Whenever I'm afraid of something and I'm paralyzed by it, what I'm saying is I believe that this is safer than that. And that is what the disciples came to believe, that obeying God was safer than obeying the Pharisees, which is upside down from many of our perspectives. And so what's the antidote for fear for them and for us? Now, I've heard preached, and I have preached many times, that the antidote for fear is faith. I actually don't think that that's the case. I think that the antidote for fear is truth. The antidote for fear is truth. Let me explain my point to you. About nine months ago, my, my son and I, I think nine months ago, were reading The Hobbit. <clears throat> we got to the point where Gollum shows up, and Gollum's a creepy dude, right? And, and then the movie comes out, he's got that weird voice, which Noah hadn't seen, but Noah got a little bit spooked up about it. And one night, Ash and I are laying in bed, it's in the middle of the night, and I hear Noah kind of yell and start to cry, and I jump out of bed, and I slam into the wall, because I'm still asleep, right, I didn't, but, uh, and I run into the room, and I'm like, buddy, what's going on? And he says to me, uh, through tears, daddy, I think that Gollum is under my bed. And so I did what any good dad would do. I said, son, you just need to have faith that he isn't, and I went back to bed. <laughs> isn't that what we do? The antidote for fear is faith. Now go to sleep. <laughs> Do you think that when I did that, he was like, oh, I just needed to be reminded of religious words that I don't understand. <laughs> Thank you, Dad. You're such a good father to me. Yeah, no, he didn't. He didn't. What did I do? I turned on the light. And I got down on my hands and knees, and I said, buddy, look under the bed. And he was like, no, no, no. And I said, buddy, come on, look under the bed. And so he got down beside me, kind of clinging to my arm, and we looked under the bed, and two eyes looked back at us. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That same thing happened at West. Everyone's like, oh, Gollum. No, seriously, two eyes looked back at us. It was a Maltese Terrier. Our dog, Bailey. And Noah goes, oh, Bailey. Right? And I said, do you see Gollum under there? And he goes, nope, just Bailey. I said, all right, how about we go back to sleep? And you know what he did? He got back up in bed, and he was asleep before I turned out the light. Why? Because the antidote for fear is truth. It's truth. Now, what does the Bible say to us about fear? It says, first of all, that God doesn't give it to us. You know those times that you have where you feel like maybe... You're supposed to do it, but you're just terrified. It happened to me last night, actually. My kids and I went to Metro Market, the new swanky out-of-place grocery store on the east side. Maybe you've been there? We went in, and I walked out the door, and there was a mom who was putting a little kid into a, um, into a stroller, and her eyes looked like they were really red. And I felt like God said to me, ask her if she needs help. I was like, yeah, man, but that'll be super awkward, especially if she doesn't. Then it looks like I'm hitting on her, right? 
So I got in my car and we started to drive away and I kind of watched her go out of the lot and I could hear my wife's voice. We should help her. Shh. <laughs> right? So I drove down a little bit further and the whole time I'm like, man. And so I turn around and Noah goes, dad, what are you doing? I said, just hang on a second. And I pull up beside the lady, right? I pull up beside the lady and I said, hey, excuse me. I said, you look like you were maybe having a rough day. Is there anything that I can help you with? And she goes, what? And I said, is there anything that I can help you with? It looked like you were crying. And she was like, I'm not crying. That's awkward. Have a good day. And I took off. Here's the point, though. <laughs> Here's the point. How many times have you found yourself thinking, I should do that? I should do that. But something in you goes, something's going to happen to me like happened to Tim, <laughs> right? Yeah, something in you goes, yeah, but what if? That's not from God. I didn't ruin that lady's day by asking her if she needed help. It was a little awkward for me, but I'm over it, obviously. <laughs> there was no damage done. Fear is not from God. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, listen to this. You have not been given a spirit of fear to slavery, but of adoption. Whenever my son yelled out, who did he call for? He called for dad. Why? Because I'm his dad. And to date, he thinks that I'm tough. <laughs> and I try to lift weights to live up to that, right? Yeah. To date, he thinks that I'm tough. Here's what God says. Whenever you think of fear, think of your father. I didn't give you a spirit of fear to slavery. I gave you a spirit of adoption. Whenever you think of fear, know that that's not from your daddy. And think of, think, of, think of the size of your dad. Think of the care of your dad. Think of the strength of your dad. And realize that fear isn't from me, but fear will make you a slave. Fear will make you a slave. Fear will dictate. Fear will tell you when to talk and when to not, what to do and what to not do. Because that's what fear does. Because it's a spiritual attack that intends to put you in bondage. And God says, that's not for me. And whenever you are afraid, remember the truth of who your daddy is. The truth of who your father is. Fear then provides me with the opportunity to believe what is true about God. To see his size and to watch him flex. Fear is an opportunity and it's also an opportunity to help us understand this truth, that when we gain clarity about what is true and what that truth means about purpose and mission, the safest place I can be is doing it. This is a sidewise idea for many of us, that the safest place I can be is doing what God has called me to do, no matter what it is. That's really what the disciples believed. They believed something that was true. It wasn't like, we should have faith. Let's walk out of here. No, it was, Jesus is real. He trained us. He commissioned us. He called us to do it. We got to go. The most courageous things that Christians can do is just believe God for who he says that he is. And the thing that keeps me from not believing God for who he says that he is it's just my definition of safety. You see, most of us, we've got a definition of safety and God has a definition of safety. And the disparity is where 
fakeness and fear lives. The reason that you and I are fake is because we're afraid to believe that the gospel is sufficient. And the reason that you and I are spiritual cowards is because we're afraid that God won't show up. And our definition of fear keeps our butts tattooed to pews instead of in neighborhoods proclaiming the gospel. Fear provides an opportunity. The opportunity to look at Jesus and the opportunity to believe God for who he says that he is. What are the things right now that on a grander level than talking to a lady at a grocery store, God wants you to do and you know it, but you're terrified? And can I also say this? And I don't, I don't say it to, to guilt trip you. But if there's nothing, no opportunity for fear, it might be that you've insulated yourself so fully that not only can you not feel afraid, but you also can't be used. Can I, can I say this, guys? If you're seeking to be used by God, you are going to be afraid. You're going to be afraid. Because God is going to lead you to places that he can see, but you can't. And you're going to get to those places and find out that you don't have what you need, but he does. And if you never find yourself being afraid and needing God, it might be that you've already been so afraid so often that you aren't doing anything. Look, these weren't special men and women. They were just people who believed God. They were just people who believed God, and their belief in what was true about God made them look extraordinarily courageous, and it would do the same for you and I. In our marriages, with our kids, at our work, in the proclamation of the gospel, in the pursuit of community, fear is a spiritual attack that must be addressed spiritually, not practically, not pragmatically, not socially, not organizationally, spiritually, in the knowledge that God says, I didn't give you a spirit of fear, I gave you a spirit of adoption. Third attack, third attack is fewness. <laughs> fewness. Fakes, fears, and fewness. The apostles, their church goes from 120 to over 3,000, and they're trying to do everything, and they say to themselves, we got to develop a new structure. We got to develop a new structure. Let me, let me say that to you in normal language. We're tired and we're getting burnt out. We're tired and we're getting burnt out. This attack of fewness, please listen, is a spiritual attack that still happens today. Most people who study the church say that in the church, 80% of the work gets done by 20% of the people. And I actually just read a guy the other day that he thinks it's actually 90-10. Can I tell you something? That's not a social issue. That's not a busyness issue. It's a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual issue. And we can market all the opportunities. We can run people up here and make announcements. We can say, we need this and that, and you could or should or might or would. But it's a spiritual issue. Serving is always a spiritual issue. Now, there's two groups of people in this. The first is the few, and the other is hopefully just the new. Those of you who are serving, let me talk to you in this regard. Number one, I just want to say thank you. 
When I came here almost three and a half years ago, this church had gone through a really painful, really brutal transition. There was one elder, and now there's five. There was no deacons, and now there's ten. It wasn't community groups. Now there's community groups and community group leaders. And there are people who serve you, whether you know it or not, so faithfully, so lovingly, so selflessly. And if that's you, I just want to say thank you so much. I want to tell you how grateful I am for you and how, how much of an answer to prayer so many of you are. And I want to talk to you about a progression that as you're serving, I want you to be mindful of. The first is just this idea of busyness. And here's the reality of it. This is where most of us get stuck. We get busy. Busyness is generally just a physical thing. It's, it's, it's I'm tired, I got too many things going, I got too many feeds going into my brain, my phone's always beeping and burping and bloating, right? Um, and the biblical, the biblical antidote for busyness is Sabbath. Sabbath, it's all the way through the Bible. You work six days and then you don't. And if you're a server or a leader or a whatever in here, at any level, I want to say as forcefully as I can and as lovingly as I can, take a day off. And when I say take a day off, I mean turn off your phone. I mean don't be available. I mean go do something that feeds your soul. Because busyness, if unattended to, will lead to burnout. Busyness, if unattended to, will lead to burnout. Busyness is about the physical body. Burnout is about your soul. Burnout is about your soul. Burnout isn't, I'm just really tired. It's, I'm tired down in there. And I can't quite get at it enough to re-energize it. Three things that I want you to know about this. And if you're leading, hopefully you either have a great memory or you're taking notes. All right? Three things that I want you to know. I think that I've probably been burned out. And I mean, for real burned out three times in my life. And I've had good coaching around this. And this is kind of a boil down of that. Number one was what, what are you focusing on? And what I found about burnout in your soul when busyness is unattended to is that I find myself doing things that I'm not good at or gifted to do. That's what the apostles are saying. We need to be preaching the Bible and instead I'm waiting on tables. It doesn't mean that waiting on tables is bad. It just means I shouldn't be doing it. My wife and I were talking the other day about hospitality ministry. And we kind of laughed because we were talking about if I did hospitality ministry, how terrible it would be. If I spent 90% of my time doing hospitality, after about three months, you'd be avoiding the front door, <laughs> right? And eventually, that would start to do damage to my soul. So what are you focusing on? If you are somewhere in between busyness and burnout, looking at what you allot your time to and saying, am I doing the only things that God has called me to do that only I can do? And the reality of it is, guys, that the spiritual attack of fewness is problematic because so many things fall to so few people that they aren't able to say, what can only I do? That should never happen in a church our size. They should, people should be able to say, I can do these two things good, not I have to do these ten things or they're not going to get done. And so if you are burning out, it's not I'm just going to keep juggling and spinning plates. What are the things that God has called me to? Number two, where am I getting the energy to accomplish them? 
Where am I getting the energy to accomplish them? And I'll tell you where it was for me. Coffee. I'm not kidding. My time with God was starting to be more sporadic and not as life-giving, and I was still busy. And I needed to figure out a way to meet the demands of being a pastor and preaching the Bible and all those kinds of things. And so I drank a lot of coffee and a lot of monsters. And here's the thing about busyness and burnout. Once you get, get supplementing those things with anything but the Holy Spirit, it's all bound to come falling down. It's all bound to come falling down. Where are you getting the energy to accomplish it? And that's why I say back here when you're busy, take Sabbath. Spend time with God's people. Spend time with God. Manage that energy so that when God gives you more because you've been faithful with few, you have the energy source to do it all well. And then lastly, and this is the most important, for whom? For whom? What are you focusing on? Where are you getting the energy? And for whom? Here's what I realized. As a pastor, a lot of the things that I was doing were neither for God or his people. They were for me. I'm going to study hard. I'm going to be as eloquent as I can so that someone comes up afterward and say, Wow, Pastor Tim, that was unbelievable. God, use it to speak to me. You're awesome. Thank you. Where's the coffee? (laughs) Here's the thing that I've learned over 15 years. There's not enough attaboys in the world to feed your soul. Now, some of you are going to have to learn that the hard way like I did. And you're going to chase it, and you're going to need it, and you're going to set yourself to get it, and you're going to drink monsters and Red Bulls and put them in that hat with the straw going to both, right? (laughs) You're going to have to come to a place where you smash into a wall to find out that only Jesus is enough. Here's the reality. Busyness, unattended to, leads to burnout, And burnout unattended to leads to bitterness. When you get burnout, what you get is self-righteous. And when you get self-righteous, you start looking around and being ticked off that people aren't as committed as you. I've seen it a thousand times, 999 in the mirror. Listen, burnout is just a step away from why don't you love Jesus as much as I do? And that seed of bitterness will get into your heart and become toxic. And listen, it will get into this church and become toxic. And let me, let me tell you on all love, guys. We're, we're very near that 90-10. We're a young church. We got lots of people who are coming to the church for the first time or coming back to the church in a long time. But we got a lot of people doing a lot of serving. And I'm talking to you right now. I love you. I'm so thankful for you. I'm asking you from the depth of my heart to get to a biblical place on busyness, burnout, and bitterness. Because once the leaders get better, the church is in a very bad spot. Now I want to talk real quickly to those of you who are not serving. You don't have to brace yourself, all right? I just want to say this, first of all, I'm... Super excited that you're here. And I, don't, I mean that in the, in the, in the best way. I, I love who God's bringing to this church. We have people, I have never been to a church in my life. And I'm thrilled that you're here. Or I haven't been to a church in so long. And the last church that I went to almost killed me, literally, right? And God's using this church in a lot of ways. And I'm so incredibly grateful for that. Some of you, you are 
a part of that fewness category. I'm, can, I, can I just be straight? Because we got some fakes. Because the idea of the church and what it can give you is cool, but any kind of giving back to it, not interested. And that's just hypocrisy. Some of it is because you're fearful. I've done that. I've been there. That church poured me out and left me dry. And I get that as well. Let me just offer you two invitations. I think that there is a knowing and being known that only exists on the other side of mutual investment. Let me give you an example. When I came here, I was introduced to a guy with a funny goatee who liked music and science fiction movies and was a hippie. And we had nothing in common other than this. We both love this place. And through that mutual commitment to DR, we've become mutually committed to one another, and his name's Matt Spranzi. And I love him because we both loved this. If that was not in place, Matt and I would say hey to one another. Hey, man, how's it going? Watch any weird movies lately? And I'd go to concerts on the porch, and it'd be cool, but I wouldn't love Matt like I love Matt because there's a knowing and being known that only comes from mutual investment. And this room is full of people like that, that I have very little in common with you, but I love you. Why? Because by God's grace, you're committed to this, and so am I. The other thing that I want to invite you into is, is this truth. I believe with all of my heart that what this church has been through, God wants to establish a multi-generational church on the east side of Madison called Damascus Road. Meaning, I want your kids to come to church here and your kids' kids to come to church here. Meaning that I want this to be the very beginning, and we're a very young church, the very beginning of a lot of years of a very long and fruitful life of Damascus Road. And in order for that to happen, for that kind of legacy to be built, we need all hands on deck. Everybody wants to be a part of something grand and romantic. They just don't want the calluses. <laughs> but I'm saying to you that I'm inviting you not into a perfect church because for the love of God, we are not. We've got so many warts, so much brokenness, but Jesus is bigger. I want to invite you past your fears. I know where this church has been. I know where the church has been in Madison. I know that many of you have gone to those churches. This church is no better than that outside of the grace of God. But I want to invite you past your fears and into the truth that Jesus loves the church more than you do and gave himself for it. And I want to invite you past the fewness. And I want to say to you, we've got lots of needs. We've got 50 kids on the other side of that wall who need someone to tell them about Jesus for two hours once a month. We got lots and lots and lots of needs here, and I want to be a part of seeing God establish a legacy in Madison for his glory and the joy of all people that only God can do from a group of people saying, we're yours, do what you want. But those attacks, fakes, fewness, and fears will keep us from all of it. Will keep us from all of it. Stand with me. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And then a couple ways that I uh, 
would like you to respond is, is just to come up. <laughs> I think I wasn't leaning on it. To come up and take communion, to be reminded of our power source, that being the cross and the Holy Spirit. We're going to sing together. We're going to pray together. Um, but I'm just going to ask you to pray around these three things. What do I need to confess toward authenticity? What am I afraid of? Sorry about what am I afraid of that I need to believe what is true? And how, God, have you made me that I need to share? And here's the thing, guys. If it isn't at Damascus Road, God bless you, but find a place where it is. We need all hands on deck because God wants to do something big here. I believe that with us, just normal folks here on the east side. Pray with me. God, I thank you for the grand plan created by the cross of a kingdom of people who love a good and gracious and trustworthy heavenly father. Thank you, God, that you've taken riffraff and rugrats and given them a spirit of adoption. You made us a family. And God, we have all of the nicks and the quirks and the brokenness of so many families, but our father is greater than all of those. God, we know that you want to do a spiritual work to build a spiritual city, to create a spiritual family, to bring a spiritual kingdom. And we know that your enemy hates that and us and that he will attack us with everything that he has. And there are people in the room today, God, who they are fakes. And they need to believe the gospel and to confess and to come into the wholeness that you offer them. There are some that we are paralyzed with fear. We're afraid about what ifs and could be's. And we need to believe the truth that you're a God who is strong and who is present and who is greater. And there are some of us who we are very content to sit on the sidelines. But God, you want to build a legacy. You want to build a generational church out of rubble. You want to build something that doubters can be convinced in, that the hurting can be healed in. You want to build something that's purposeful and transcendent. God, we don't know what that looks like, but we know that you do, and so we say, where your people do with it, and us what you want. Lead us. Speak to us. We need you. Would you heal us today, God? Would you give us supernatural courage today? Would you give us mutual investment today for your great and beautiful name? We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.